Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of CEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by James M. Dorsey. James is a senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Singapore's Nanyang Technological University, the Middle East Institute there, of course. He's a, uh, a syndicated columnist. And many of you would, of course, know him from his work, his blog post, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. It's a delight to have James Dorsey on the podcast today. James, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your interest in the, the Middle East then? Where did this start? I know you've been covering the region for, for a, a while now. So what prompted your, your interest in the Middle East? Well, I think there were multiple reasons. One is uh, background. Um, I come from a Jewish family, uh, partly of Moroccan descent. Right. Uh, and so... Uh, and. My parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was a, uh, a resistance fighter. Um, and so as a result of that, uh, the Middle East was obviously something that I was interested in. And uh, my student days were in the late 60s, so the time of the, um, of the student revolt. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was a proponent. Uh, I wasn't willing to uh, condemn Zionism. Uh, and I was a proponent of a two-state solution, right. which in the late 60s, early 70s, was revolutionary. Yeah, of course, yeah. Now, now everybody uh, is in favor of that or no longer in favor of that. <laughs> but at the time, yeah. it was a very revolutionary concept. And so as a result, um, uh, there was an automatic and immediate interest in the Middle East. Sure. And then I started my career, which was as a journalist, and in some ways I was lucky. I started off my career covering the Middle East. Right. And as a result of that, uh, and, and increasingly my career really became focused globally on ethnic and religious conflict. And I was based across the globe and traveled across the globe from one conflict to another. But, uh, but obviously the Middle East was a core part of that. And in the course of my career, I'd lived across the Middle East in, I think, about 10 countries. Wow. Uh, you know, and so you, over years, just build, uh, a, a build one, on the one hand, an affinity, and on the principle of Socrates, the more you know, the less you know, hmm. a degree of least historical memory of, of events and of people that you've met in certain situations that you've been in. in. Sure. James, what were you reading at university at the time of your, your radical views of the two-state solution? Economics and tropical agriculture. <laughs> tropical agriculture? Yes. Fantastic. I think you are the first guest that we've had on the show to have read Tropical Agriculture. That's that's fantastic. And luckily you will not, you will not ask me anything about it. Well, actually, I've got a full list of questions about Tropical Agriculture, but um, maybe for the next time. <laughs> so... You you were um, you were lucky enough to get this this job in journalism, looking at the the Middle East. Do you remember the first story that you uh, that you produced on the region? Well, the the very first stories that I wrote, which I was writing as a freelancer at the time, were related to the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Right. Okay. And then 
my first job in journalism was I got in 75, 76. And um, then at that time, I basically that year spent in the Middle East and traveled literally almost everywhere. And I remember that one of the stories that I wrote was in 1976 out of Kuwait. And in some ways it may have shaped my view of the Gulf because I described Kuwait as an apartheid state. Okay. Uh, and that had to do with uh, obviously a much smaller, but nonetheless uh, not insignificant presence of um, foreigners, foreign labor, yeah. who uh, had no rights and no, um, no prospects of rights. And it had to do also with the Bidoum, the, the, the stateless, yeah. those, uh, those Kuwaitis who could not prove Kuwaiti uh, nationality or were on the wrong side of the border at the time of independence, mm -hmm. and until today are a disenfranchised group. And it was all the, you know, the, that, that those discrepancies were all the starker because Kuwait was a relatively liberal state in the Middle East. Sure. It wasn't parliamentary democracy. It had a degree of, um, of, uh, of press freedom. And, and so I remember that story. Somehow that story sticks in my mind. Uh, and, you know, years later I was based in Kuwait and a lot of that I was able to get into into much more depth. Fantastic. How was it, re how was it received writing that type of story at that time? You know, uh, I was shielded in a sense, uh, and it was also something that in some ways shaped my career. So my career started in the Netherlands, and so I was writing and broadcasting in Dutch. Okay. Even though Dutch was a foreign language for me. <laughs> right. Uh, but as a result, you know, the Dutch is not a language that, that, that uh, most people read. And certainly in those years, I don't think that people in the Gulf paid a lot of attention to, um, to what Dutch press was doing. Right, okay, as, sure. As in some ways, uh, I could get away with maybe more. I, I could, you know, one, it was a different time. Uh, you, got, you could get away with more in those years than you can get away with today. Yeah. Uh, one, but two, uh, because... You know, nobody outside of the Netherlands really was reading me. It didn't really matter. Right, okay. Which was the reason why I left the Dutch media. Sure, I can understand Even that. I left, I kept a relationship for many years afterwards. Right. So that that's actually, yeah, an interesting way of, of getting some material out there in a, in a relatively safe way, I guess, at that point. Because, as you say, nowadays, if you were to publish something like that, it would be very difficult for you to, uh, to, to go back, certainly, I would imagine. That's true. Well, you know, that's part of the course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, But, sure. but to be, also, to be fair, I'm not sure that I thought of it in those terms. Right, okay. And, you know, uh, that's one. But two, I also think that my fundamental attitude towards these things uh, has not changed. So, with other words... I don't believe that you should compromise Certainly. on anything that you want to write, short of it risking somebody's life. Right. But in terms of uh, compromising on your own access, 
or what uh, people may or may not think about what you write. Once you do that, you're on a very slippery slope. That's interesting to hear you say that, and I, I commend your your position. But I think writing on the, the Gulf and the Middle East is is incredibly difficult, trying to balance many of those different concerns in terms of um, personal safety, integrity, access, um, safety, uh, liberty, the freedom to, to write whatever you see fit with without any worry about consequences. So, for, well, for, I think you need to differentiate there. Okay. You know, so, with other words, uh, safety, security is one thing. Yeah. And I know that very well. I mean, I've been the target of assassination attempts more than once. Right. Uh, I've been in multiple other situations in which I was not sure or even certain that I would not come back from. And you constantly have to ask yourself, and it's only it's a question that only you can answer. Is it worth it? Yeah. And there is no right or wrong answer here. And, you know, any decision to say it's not worth it is a very valid, uh, valid and, and honorable position. And I will not take anybody to task on that. Yeah. Well, Having access and compromising yourself because of uh, for that access by definition already calls into question the relationship between you and your sources certainly yeah and 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 the the notion and i know this out of personal experience the notion that because you can't enter a country anymore doesn't mean that you've cut your access off yeah i mean i still have access to people in countries i cannot enter Sure. And and so, you know, so I think that you've got to really, when you talk about consequences, you've got to differentiate what are legitimate concerns for which you would compromise or not do something because nothing nothing is worth a person's life. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for that. You've your preempted my question life, there, James. So, your own life or the life of your thoughts. Sorry? You preempted my question there. I was going to ask what guidance would you give, what advice would you give to someone who was was weighing up these these moral quandaries. So so thank you. Yeah, I, I'll take it one step further in terms Please. of I have very seldom, and there's one uh, instance where um, where um, where I that I recall very well where I killed a story, and the story was already edited and on its way to the printing press. Okay, and I did that. Because, and it was my judgment, not the source's judgment. The source said to me, and he was named, the source said to me, look, I will never deny what I said. Okay. Nor will I ask you not to, um, uh, not to publish. But I will tell you that publication at this very specific moment could threaten my life. Right. And I pulled the story. There was no way that, that, that any story was worth somebody's life, nor was I going to be put in a position in where I would have been uh, potentially responsible. Mm. Uh, so, you know, you've got to be very clear where, where, these, where these red lines are. 
and these red lines cannot be opportunistic. Yeah. And to me, being opportunistic means I'm not going to write what I really saw, heard, or believe, because then they won't talk to me anymore. They may not let me into my country, into the country. Well, you know, that's what this business is about. Yeah, sure. That's really important and really, really helpful advice there for, for academics and for, for journalists, I think. Such and these are tough decisions. Yeah. I, I realize that. These are not, these are not easy decisions, uh, but I do think they are decisions of principle that one needs to uh, keep in mind. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think integrity, scholarship and integrity go hand in hand, or at least they should go hand in hand. So this is this is very important. So, James, let's let's go back to um, to your time in the region during the the mid to late seventies, if I may. And obviously, it's a, a, a very different time to to now. Um, pre Iranian Revolution, pre seizure of the Grand Mosque, pre uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. What are your memories of that that period? All of those. <laughs> yeah. So with. I lived the first time. I lived twice in Beirut. The first time was from seventy-five to seventy-seven. Um, I was in Afghanistan within two days of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I was expelled from Afghanistan a month later after a hilarious news conference uh, with Babar Kamal, the then Soviet-backed president. Smuggled myself back into uh, Afghanistan and got expelled again. So I, and then over the years, dealt with the Mujahideen. Right. Uh, was in Iran from the summer of, I lived in Iran from the summer of 78 to um, the, um, uh, till the 1981. So all through the, uh, is the, uh, the Islamic Revolution um, and the Midi period after that, and then the, uh, the first year of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and in between, I was based in Israel, and that was the, those were the days of the rise of uh, Menachem Begin. Yeah, of course. So, uh, and of course, uh, uh, you know, the, the time, 1980, the killing of uh, Anwar Sadat. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was an absolutely fascinating time of, of, of really major historical events that have shaped the region until today. Yeah, no doubt. Wow, that that you must have quite the memories of, of all those different periods. I a bits and pieces. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, wow, uh, I I could sit and pick your brain for hours, James, but but, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Well, that's, don't worry. <laughs> well, what are your memories of, of the revolution then? If that if we can just touch on that for for a minute or two. I think there were there were several there were uh, uh, there were three memories. Okay. One was this was truly a popular revolution. It probably was the only popular revolution of the 20th century, alongside the Russian Revolution. Yeah. Um, that w- that was one memory. The second memory is that, in a lot of ways. Okay, you had two constituent elements, if you wish, or two constituent elements of the revolution that I want to look at. One was the clergy, and the other were uh, deeply religious forces, but they were in, they were not 
they were not Islamic scholars. They were politicians. They were whatever. And, and in some ways, they also were technocrats. And they, they were obviously convinced that the, the, the revolution would need them because the clergy would not be able to manage the country. But in terms of trying to figure out what they wanted to do, they had no concept of what an Islamic republic was. And they were, they were struggling to, de to develop that concept. Um, in the end, obviously, they lost out in the power struggles. The third thing that I remember that sticks in my mind in uh, very, very, it's etched into my mind was the day of the revolution itself. And I, I need to go back a few weeks to say there was a dinner on the 31st of December, 1978, at the house of uh, um, the son-in-law of the Shah, who was also the uh, Shah's ambassador to Washington. Right. So there were eight people at that dinner. Four of them were the first four people to be executed after the um, uh, after the um, revolution. It included the head of the Secret Service mm -hmm. uh, and the martial law commanders of Tehran and Isfahan, and a guy, General Khosrowdad, who was the head of the air wing of the military of the army. And it was very clear that they were pushing for uh, a hardline uh, uh, response to the demonstrations, simply crush them. And on the day of the revolution, I was, was a, if I'm correct, a Saturday, and it was four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Bakhtiar, who was then the prime minister, had called for a curfew. Khomeini had called for everybody out in the streets. Uh, police bureaus were being overrun. Millions of people were there. Up in the air were the helicopter gunships of this air wing commander. Yeah. And I was sort of standing right in the middle on the top of the Intercontinental Hotel. Oh, right. <laughs> and so I was looking up at these helicopters and looking down at these masses of people. And it was very clear. You either paved those roads with corpses. You just mowed them down, no matter what, or you had lost. Yeah. And it was the Shah who refused to give the order. Right, okay. They were waiting for the Shah's order, but it was such a, such a dramatic moment and such a decisive moment that you almost had to be there to, 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 to understand the depth, depth of it. Yeah, wow. And then the the weeks that followed then of, of chaos, uncertainty, excitement, fear. Well, there was a, a I mean, there was a great excitement. Sure. Without question. Uh, there were pockets where there was fear. I mean, the Jewish community, for one, of course, which yep. was very uncertain how the revolution would deal with it. The Baha'is, who... Mm -hmm you know, have not fared well in Iran. That's true, uh, yeah. Uh, clearly, those who were um, uh, who were close to the Shah identified with the regime and the very people I had dinner with because it was very clear that, you know, the new regime viewed the military as the Shah's military.
which is why that was when the Revolutionary Guards were formed. Right. They were formed because there was fundamental distrust of, um, of, uh, of the military. And I remember going, not being in the room, but going and being outside the room of the very first uh, meeting of the, uh, the Iranian military's general staff and talking to people as you know, as they left the uh, the meeting and they were they were very insecure and every right to several of them were executed within days yeah of course wow such a lot to uh, to look back on and a lot to to reflect on for for people who want to read more about your your accounts of of this james where should we direct people well, basically, I've, you know, you'd have to go back to the Christian Science Monitor, um, and you know, for which I was working when I was in Iran. Right. And I did still do at the time for the Dutch media, and uh, there's a lot on that. I, on, that you know, but in, in terms of uh, I broadcast for NBC, both television and radio. Uh, but I've never sort of stepped back and and you know, looked back at this reflectively and written about it. I think that would be fascinating at some point. It's maybe something to add to your ever-expanding list of projects. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Fair enough. Well, James... Uh, no, a, lot, a lot of people, including Sorry. my wife, have urged me to uh, to uh, write my memoirs, and I, I won't do that. And, I, and I, I realize why I won't do it, and that's in a sense, also relevant. Uh, you deal with, everybody deals, individually deals with trauma and traumatic experiences Yeah. their own way. Sure. Uh, I've dealt with it by rationalizing them away. Right, okay. And I don't want to go back there. Sure. And so it's, to me, a can of worms I'm just not willing to open. That's understandable, entirely understandable. So I guess uh, people have to do their digging, do their homework through Christian yeah, Science I'm Monitor. Afraid, and... afraid, yes. <laughs> well, that's that's entirely fine. But um, if I may, James, we're, we've taken up a lot of your time already, but I'd like to just touch on the, the Middle East soccer, please, if sure. I may. Um, perhaps the most prolific uh, blog news site on, on the Middle East in operation today run by one incredibly prolific man. What's the, the story behind Middle East soccer? I remember talking to you in, in Barcelona at a WACMES conference um, oh, yeah. 10 years ago now about, about this, and it really struck me as a fascinating way to, uh, to approach the region. But I remember you, you saying something along the lines of that you're not really bothered about football. Well... Indeed, 10 years ago is when I started, and I probably would have said to you also that it lasts as long as it lasts, and yeah. that's it. Uh, it, to be To be honest, I stumbled onto this pure opportunism. I'm not a soccer fan. I know nothing about soccer <laughs> as a sport. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to ask me, I mean, I sort of know the rules, but if you're going to ask me who played against whom, when, and this player and that player... I probably barely would recognize names. But I wrote a piece on the eve of the uh, 2010 World Cup in South Africa, which was more, I wrote it as a fluke, 
uh, on the political reasons that were holding back Middle Eastern teams, and you have soccer powerhouses in the Middle East, from really performing uh, beyond the region on, um, uh, for example, in qualifications to World Cups and yeah. in performing in World Cups. And at that point, I was also looking for a way to, um, to look at the Middle East through a different prism rather than become the umpteenth analyst who uh, you know, crosses his T's and his, dots his I's somewhat hmm. differently than others do. And a friend of mine who's a very established writer and a soccer fan and player uh, read that piece and phoned me and said, you have a book. And it was like someone, uh, you know, someone needs to say something to you for the penny to drop. Yeah, of course. Well, the penny, the penny dropped. And it did two things for me. One, uh, it opened up a world that I had not realized, and I think that most Middle East scholars have not realized, or had not realized, which is, if you look at sports studies, sports studies are very strong in uh, the Anglo-Saxon world, in the French-speaking world, the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, they are focused on the Americas, North and South, on Europe, on Africa, and on Asia. There is barely nothing on the Middle East. And Middle East studies never looked at sports. In fact, there was a, um, a scholar who's now left uh, academia, whose name now slips my mind, but he did a very brief piece, I think, in the Middle East Journal in 2009, in which he pointed this out. And so, and, and, and so it was a real learning process. You know, we all know that football plays a political role. But if you look at that role in most of the world, it plays that role intermittently in certain circumstances for a period of time. Hmm. Whereas I would argue that in the Middle East over the last century, or for much of the last century, football played a vital role in whether it was national identity formation and nation formation, whether it was uh, uh, anti-colonial struggles, struggles for ethnic or religious identity, uh, nation formation, regime survival, uh, and resistance. Right. And you yeah. see that from the early 20th century, certainly through into, in, you know, less so obviously now in the circumstances, but including to the, the, the Arab revolts in 2011. What is it about football in particular, though, that makes it a good lens through which we can view all of these things? And I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to your point of view. I, I love your blog. I love your work. But, but why football? What, what is it about football as a sport, do you think, that, that makes it this wonderful lens? First of all, it's the most popular form of popular entertainment in the world. Some 5% of the world population are engaged in football in one way or another. There's very little else that draws the sort of numbers that, are, that football competitions do. It's a very aggressive sport. It's, a, you know, it's about conquering the other half of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, of the soccer field. Mm. And it's a, it's a sport that uh, evokes 
tribal relationships and your support for a club, and that's not just in the Middle East, but, but in general often, is passed on from father to child with a son or daughter. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, there was a study in Egypt, I think, in 2011-2012, in which, which established that football was the foremost uh, reason for divorce. Wow! Because, because the wife had three choices. You know, the 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 the, the husband would, if he had to cho- choose between football tickets and a vacation for the family, he chose football tickets. <laughs> the wife, you know, his hit the high point of his life was the Friday match. Um, and the wife had three choices: she could either be totally obedient to her husband, as fanatically supportive of the club as, as, as her husband, or say, I'm not going to take this, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it's that, that, you know, there's, I don't think there's much else in the Middle East that evokes the kind of deep-seated passion that religion evokes other than football. Hmm. Okay, I can certainly see and, that. In fact, if you go back to the pre-2011 days, it, you know, the question in Cairo among Egyptians was not, you know, where are you from or what part of town? It was, are you Ahli or Zamalek? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind that these clubs, most clubs in the Middle East, were formed with either a political affiliation or some sort of political ideology. So, for example, we talk about the 1919 revolution in Egypt that led to independence in 1922 as been heavily carried by students. Those students were Al-Akhli fans. Al-Akhli was founded with the explicit goal of overthrowing the monarchy. Right. That revolution was was planned on the grounds of the Al Ahli uh, Sports Club. Sure. Fascinating. And I'm sure that across the region you have similar types of stories of clubs Absolutely. having these political. Yeah. Oh, from Algeria in the 1920s, and why are why were cu- uh, clubs called Islamic yep. and not something else? To um, Morocco, to uh, look at the sports. Um, uh, sports wings and 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 the uh, the role that they played in the Zionist movement. Mm. Look at Ottoman modernization. Look at Iranian modernization under the Shah in the early twentieth century. And I I love that that every day you use football as a means of looking at different aspects of of regional politics. It's absolutely fascinating. And so, yeah, although I do far less of that today. Yeah, sure. To be fair, sure. But it's it's such a wonderful way of doing it, and and the the ability to keep churning out material that is so prescient and and important is is incredible. Um, I've I've often joked that you're the most prolific man in Middle East politics. Um, <laughs> so it's it's wonderful. Uh, James, yeah, not, not to the pleasure of everybody. <laughs> well, I'm sure your wife may have a few things to say about this, but uh, 
Um, yeah. James, we've taken up so much of your time, but if I may ask one final question. Sure. Uh, have you, by virtue of the work that you've been doing over the past 10 years, discovered some form of, of team, some type of affinity, affiliation with a, a club across the region that, that you can call your own, even if you're not a sports fan or a football fan, sorry? Not really, not really. Not there's really. a certain, there's a, to be fair, there's a certain empathy that I probably have for Alakli in Cairo. Sure. Or for Muladia in, in, in uh, Morocco. Okay. Uh, but but not really. I mean, it's, it's I, I don't, on a personal level, I don't relate to football. Right, okay. You know, and, and in fact, neither did my wife, but when the uh, World Cup was taking place in... Um, uh, it was about four years ago, uh, and Russia. we were traveling in in the Middle East and in Europe. Yeah, uh, she suddenly became a fan. She wanted to watch the matches. <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> Fantastic. Well, James, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you about all of your work. Um, really, really well, stimulating. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So, thank you so much. Um, you can find James's work online, Christian Science Monitor, at the Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. He's on Twitter. So, James, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Take care and hope to speak to you soon. Pleasure was mine. Thank you. Thanks, James.